Thank you for visiting the Collective Church podcast. For more information, please visit thecollectivechurch.co.za. If I were to give this the name, Living the Undivided Life with Christ. Sometimes we live, we can live in this divided existence between what's going on inside of us and what we're portraying to others outside of us. Perhaps we feel if we express what we're truly feeling, we'll be marginalized or treated as unusable. It's like there can be places in ourselves we wouldn't dare to bring into community. And in my walk, I've had to really be intentional about giving weakness and vulnerability a space in my theology, a space in my everyday life. And so my prayer today is that you would leave with just more grace for your walk and where you act and what the Lord is doing in your heart. That is my deep prayer. I've been wrestling over this for a long time, this message. Um, And yeah, so here we go. In Jesus' pursuit for us, he didn't come as everyone expected him to come, in heroics, being announced from the top of a mountain. He was born in the most vulnerable position you can start laughing as a baby, absolutely open to the influence of the world. And as he grew as a son of God, he didn't come imposing sacrifice, he didn't come imposing perfection as the religions of those days did. There was the pure and there was the impure. Separate, never to meet. But Jesus flipped religion on its head. He came and he walked amongst the impure and called what was seemingly worthless as worthy. And he called what was seemingly worthy at the time, perfection, make sure the outside of the cup is looking beautiful, he called that worthless. And then he takes it a step further. This is Jesus, our God, the king that everyone expected. He hung on the cross. And he presented himself to all the heavens and all the earth as vulnerable. Vulnerable is a Latin word, which we've all heard that word, vulnerable. It comes from the Latin word vulnera, which actually means wounded. So Jesus was the most unlikely king. Born as a baby, loving the poor and the broken, the rich and the wealthy, getting his feet dirty, in our mess and now wounded and vulnerable on a cross with no one else around him but some thieves. This is the king that everyone was waiting for. The Jesus we follow clothed himself in vulnerability, clothed himself in woundedness as he lay on the cross. And the message, that message that was shouting off the cross is actually hard, it's hard to miss, but we miss it sometimes. That our king was wounded and broken. We, miss, we can miss that message and sum up his life and that moment as a mere transaction. When Hebrews 4, it says, and this is the message for me, is this is the core of the gospel, that we have a high king priest who sympathizes with our frailty. He didn't just have a degree in our frailty. He had first-hand experience in our frailty. He did this so that we can with confidence and freely draw near Come as we are to the throne of grace that we may have mercy and find grace in times of need. That's the gospel. That's the message of the cross. And so, living an undivided life is learning to love ourselves. It might surprise you 
that God loves human beings. Not ideal human beings. God so loved the ideal world that he gave his son. God loved the real world. The real. The good, the bad, the ugly. And we may feel there are parts of our lives that are in opposition to God. They know go spaces for him. But I would say to you that those parts of your lives are grounds for transforming unfathomable and everlasting love if we would just allow him onto those oppositional grounds. Those grounds that we think are just no go. We've got those signs up. Do not walk on the grass. Those, those tough spaces, those are grounds for his unfathomable, everlasting love. I was reading this letter that an, an acclaimed analytical psychologist, one of the forefathers of this thing of counseling, like talking to someone else through your problems, he was one of the forefathers. And he wrote a letter to a young Christian lady on his observation of, of Christians. And he said, I admire Christians because when you see someone who is hungry or thirsty, you see Jesus. When you welcome a stranger, someone who is strange, you welcome Jesus. When you clothe someone naked, you clothe Jesus. But what I do not understand, however, is that Christians never seem to recognize Jesus in their own poverty. You always want to do good to the poor outside of you, and at the same time, you deny the poor person inside of you. And he said, why can't you see Jesus in your own poverty? Why can't you see him in your own hunger? Why can't you see him in your own thirstiness? And all that is strange about you, in the violence, the anguish, and the things that are beyond your control. He said, you are called to welcome all of this, not to deny its existence, but to accept that it is there and to meet Jesus in that place. That's a pretty powerful observation, don't you agree? Because I think as humans, we have this inbuilt default to everything is fine. I'm raining. I'm good. God is good. Life is good. And that's okay. We have this inbuilt default where sometimes the outside of the cup is more important than the inside of the cup. We put up a facade because we think perhaps God can't work with my story or he can't work with this particular struggle. Or maybe my community won't accept me. When in Revelation 12, 11... It's pretty clear how we overcome. It says we overcome, they have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Our unique testimonies are formed when all the ways we've doubted, all the things we've feared, all the ways we've been broken, all the ways we've messed up, all the ways we've done well, all the ways we've seen amazing successes, all those things that sum up our lives meet the blood of Jesus. That's when our testimonies begin to form. That's our messy story, being redeemed by salvation. But do we allow our stories to disqualify us? Or do we allow them to become an invitation to overcome through Jesus? Are we allowing our struggles or our histories, the current things we're going through or our past, do we allow those things to overcome us? Or are we overcoming by our testimonies? Sometimes we can live more overcome by what we've done as opposed to realizing what Jesus has done and we live, we live to overcome with those things that Jesus has done. Because Jesus doesn't just meet us in our high points, in our massive visions, when we seemingly have it all together, the heroics of life. He actually meets us in the mundane. I've known this to be true for my life. He meets us in the mundane. The grounds in our lives that we think are wastelands 
He breathes everlasting love. And they become gardens of his love that we can tell others about and spread hope. <clears throat> so when we allow more space in our theologies for our weakness and our frailty and the things, whatever, fill in the blanks. When we invite more, more space for those things, we are actually inviting more space for Jesus to work. More room for Jesus to move within our own lives. And I think in Mark 12, Jesus taught us something very important and shone a light into this process of learning to love ourselves in living an undivided life for Christ. In Mark 12, Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? Quite a question. And he said, well, there's two. There's love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. According to Jesus, the most important commandments Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't say to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. He didn't say you're only going to start loving your neighbor when you love yourself. What he was saying is those two loves are equally important and valuable. And that your love for your neighbor should be a continuation of your love for yourself. You get that? Your love for your neighbor should be a continuation of a love for yourself. You're making more room for your own weakness, you make more room for the weakness in other people's lives. So what is love then? Where's the best chapter to go to for love? 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious, it's not boastful, it's not proud, it's honoring, it's not angry, etc., etc. So it's saying to love your neighbor with the same patience you show yourself. To love your neighbor with the kindness you show to yourself. To love your neighbor with the honor you show to yourself. To love your neighbor with the self-control you have for yourself. That's powerful when you think about it that way. When you break down that word, to love your neighbor as yourself. And it takes courage to be gracious with yourself and embrace your weakness and not deny it. To befriend our weaknesses and sit at the table that Jesus has laid out for us. To love all of yourself and as you welcome your struggles, you welcome the power of Jesus to transform and heal, as opposed to denying it all and living in a sort of numb, numbness. Matthew 16, it says that we are to take up our cross and follow him. It doesn't say, go and create a cross for yourself and follow me. Don't, don't, go and find weight somewhere, pick it up and follow me. Like, no, you've, you've looked at your, look at your own life. Don't try and create a cross for yourself. Create something for yourself. Take up your life. Then he says, lose your life. Because as you lose your life, you'll find your life in me. The second part of that. So perhaps losing our lives as we take up our cross is losing our, our perceptions of perfection. Losing our scaffolding that keeps us striving. Losing those things that we thought would bring us complete deep nourishment, but they just haven't. They haven't quite fulfilled us. Losing those things, those things that we think are bringing us abundant life and following Him. Because in Colossians 3 it says, as we see more of Jesus, we see more of ourselves. So as we lose those perceptions and those things that we carry and we follow Jesus, we see more of ourselves our true souls. Taking up our cross and following Him is loving what God loves. 
both the good and the bad, the happy and the sad. The cross is a very dramatic unfolding of the Father's heart and passion for us. Carrying our cross means your lives are hidden with Christ and God, you have tasted of this redeeming love and power, and now you are following Jesus with a whole new filter over your eyes. You can now see all of life through the lens of his healing love, his power, and his grace to hold all our tensions. The following of Jesus is not a salvation scheme. It's not a step up higher on the hierarchy. Someone said this, I read it. It said, Jesus did not come to create a spiritual elite or a people who don't understand this thing called suffering. He invited people to follow him by personally bearing the mystery of human death and suffering and the resurrection life of Christ. Two tensions that we can sometimes live with. We can be faced with extreme suffering and these days we can be faced with absolutely on top of the world. There's a tension we live with and that's the cross brings both those things together and obviously the message of the cross is Jesus was victorious. But as we learn to carry the cross, we learn to carry all that the Father carries, all that the Father has space in Him for us. And He starts creating space in us for others. So in our honesty with these things that we can struggle with, learning to, to live um, undivided, Sometimes we, we can use this as a sort of reason to disengage from the people and the promises over our lives. We can get too caught up in the one tension of just my suffering. It starts to define us. We hide, we disengage. God doesn't believe in me anymore. And I say that graciously. We all have experienced things where we have legitimate reasons to give it all up. But I believe the difference and the tension between suffering and freedom and just being defined by your hurts and trying to live the victorious life, the bridge of those two things, the line that we walk, is the call to be fruitful and to multiply. The divided life is living in the extremes of either or. A fruitful life requires all the elements of our lives, past, present, and future. I just want to share a little bit on... This, this, this bridge of fruitfulness in our lives. Someone wrote this. I've been reading one of these guys. Anyway. You see, there's a difference between successfulness and fruitfulness. This drive for striving, this drive of perfection. There's a difference between successfulness and fruitfulness. Success comes from strength, control, and respectability. A successful person has the energy to create something, to keep control over its developments, and to make it available in large quantities. Success brings many rewards and often fame. Fruits, however, come from weakness and vulnerability. And fruits are unique. A child is the fruit conceived in vulnerability. Community is a fruit born through shared brokenness. And intimacy is the fruit that grows through touching one another's wounds. We have to remind ourselves that what brings us true deep and lasting joy is not successfulness, not perfection, not the outside of the cup, but fruitfulness. It's coming back to the subject of living an undivided life with Christ. It's learning to live in that tension, that abiding in Him within the, within the contradictions of our lives, abiding with Him and learning to live in that call to be fruitful. Because fruitfulness is learning to bear fruits off your own tree and your own life so that it can multiply. We have our own soil. We have our own water source. 
and we're called to bear fruit in our lives and not let anything stop that process. Like not acknowledging that you're human, <laughs> I think is one good way that can sometimes trip us up and that can sometimes lead us into productivity and, and I guess trying to be perfect. Andrew Murray, a famous South African theologian, he wrote a book about the vine, John 15. And he wrote this, A machine can do work, but only life can bear fruit. A law can compel work, but only love can spontaneously bring forth fruit. Work implies efforts and labor, but the essential idea of fruit is that it is the silent, natural, restful produce of our inner life. Abiding in the vine then comes to be nothing more or less than the restful surrender of the soul to let Christ have all and to work in all. The call to abide in Jesus is a call to stay fully present in your relationship with him, fully aware of your need and dependence of him amidst the storms and the struggles and the contradictions. So are we sons and daughters living real lives? Or are we machines, as Andrew Murray puts it? Sons and daughters are not defined or loved or measured by what we do. We do good, we feel great. We make a mistake, it's the end of the world. Sons and daughters are not defined, um, loved or measured by what others say about us. Someone says something good to you, you feel you're on top of the world. Someone spreads a rumor or says something nasty, your whole life falls apart. There could be 100 people lined up here. 99 could say, great preach today, Sean. One person could say, ah, I didn't like it. Which one am I going to go home with? <laughs> wow. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but sons and daughters are not defined, loved, or measured by that. We're not defined, loved, or measured by what we have. So everything gets taken away from us. We feel like our lives are spiraling and out of our control and we've lost belief in ourselves. Trust in God. Trust in everyone. We are called to be sons and daughters who are defined by an everlasting love that had its focus on us before the world began. Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love and I have drawn you with an unfailing kindness. I have loved you with a forever, permanently, eternal, never-ending, endless, without end, perpetual, undying, immortal, deathless, indestructible, immutable, abiding, enduring, infinite, boundless, can I get a beat? Timeless. <laughs> That's what everlasting means. Shall I do it again? <laughs> John 1.12, we are his children. John 15, we are his friends and conduits of life. Romans 8.17, we are co-heirs. Ephesians 1.4, I am chosen, redeemed, and forgiven. Psalm 139 and Matthew 10, I am valuable. I was knit together in my mother's womb and every single hair on my head is accounted for. That should define us. That's going to bear us some good fruit. He sees all of us and loves all of us. Before any of our successes or mistakes, he pulled down the veil of separation before anything we did, before we took our first steps, it says in Ephesians 1, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. The message says it this way, um, He had settled in His heart that we would be the focus of His love. Way before we were born, 
Think about that. He dreamed us up. He settled in his heart that we would be the focus of his love. We're the target. So we're defined by his treasuring of us, not the measuring of ourselves. We are defined by the treasuring, his treasuring of us, than the measurements of ourselves. And abiding in Jesus is holding on to these truths. That's our sustenance. Becoming fruitful, that's our water. That's our light. Even Jesus had to hold on to the truth. He was, before he walked into the desert, he had that encounter with the Father's voice. You are my beloved, and in you I'm well pleased. Now, it says in Colossians 3, that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. So everything spoken of Jesus is spoken of us. Okay? So Jesus takes that voice of affirmation, he walks into the desert, well, he's led into the desert, and who's there waiting for him? Opposition, the devil. Come do more. Come be more. Come show everybody that's watching you, show everyone that you are son of, the son of God outside of yourself. And Jesus was like, mm-mm. He had that inner voice. He was holding on to that inner voice. He was called king. He was called crook. He was called savior. He was called evil. Demon possessed. Have you ever been called demon possessed? I hope not. But I mean, think about that. He was called demon possessed. But all through those tensions, he held on to that voice of affirmation. You are my chosen. You are my beloved. And you are well pleased. So if Jesus did it, how much more should we? What should give us courage to live in a world that is full of temptation to be more, to do more, get more likes, have more comments? I'm trying to be all social here. Digital, digital, this is a Facebook I'm talking about, anyone? Um, but seriously, I'm not going to lie, I share a track and I get two likes, one of my songs. That's hard stuff to deal with, man. That's first world problems right there. But it's a problem nonetheless, and the Lord cares about me, and He cares for my heart. Because that little problem can become a very big problem later. So what should give us courage in this world should be the voice of the Father, and not what we can do ourselves, and not what we can prove on our own. The more we rely on His voice, the more we become fascinated with who He is. Because we realize the grace and love that constantly meets us. And a side note, that the most fruitful vines, well, fruitful vines, Need direct sunlight. I love that Jesus used John 15, the vine, as an example. There's something in that. The fruitful vines need direct sunlight. Just sitting with all your success and all your weakness and all your solutions and all your problems, sitting at the feet of Jesus and allowing His light and everlasting love to shine into every corner of your life. And when we allow ourselves to be fascinated by this voice, it creates a momentum in our lives. A snowball effect that takes out every lie. It really does. We can practice and we can become professionals in entertaining negative things. I, I can say that I, I know that. And I've seen the momentum it brings in my household, with my kids, and with my people at work. So if that's true, then holding on to the voice of Jesus and growing, that's been my thing. I want grow, people grow not through force, they grow through fascination. Any person knows that has kids, you try to force something. Jesus has designed us this way to grow through fascination. The more we mellow on his voice and the things he's, I've just listed just a few, creates a momentum that takes out lies in our lives. 
So I'm bringing this to an end. But Christ calls all of ourselves, not just the best part of ourselves. We are called to do great works and to dream big dreams. But stripping your weakness from yourself does not qualify you. Silencing that weakness, silencing those vulnerabilities does not qualify you. Jesus does. Christ does. Your testimony. Those things that you're trying to silence are your testimony. Waiting to help you overcome. Waiting for the light and the healing power of Jesus to help you overcome. When you hear someone's weakness, I don't know about you, when I hear a true life story, I, I'm, I'm obsessed with biographies. You can ask my wife. I just want to read true life stuff. I don't want to watch anything fake. Why? Because you just see some, someone struggling with something, someone overcame circumstances, you're just like, oh, it gives you courage. I don't want to hear the best parts. I want to hear the utmost worst parts. Because then I, I can relate. That's why Jesus has become a merciful high priest. Jesus didn't just have the qualification. He lived among us. He moved among us. He touched us our wounds. And we are called to, to live lives of faith and not be victims. We aren't called to be, I'm not saying everybody become a victim. I'm saying let, let what's hurt you become your victory. Because we doubt, we fear, we get scared sometimes. We petrify, we worry about money, we're tired, we kick the dog. I don't kick my dog, I love my dog. But we might. But you know what? Doubt, fear and being petrified is not opposition to your faith. Certainty is. Doubt, fear, and worry are not opposition to your faith. Certainty is. Thank you, Ali. The feeling of having to know it all and having it all under control. I know how life works. You are certain that the very real challenges you are facing can disqualify you. Let go of that certainty today what I want to say to you. So certainty is what robs us, is what sometimes opposes our faith. Having it all under control. I know how this works, Sean. You don't understand. But how many times did Jesus blow up our certainties in the Bible? If you need evidence of Jesus blowing up that type of certainty, of uh, being certain about your struggles, certainly the girl is dead. Mark 5, 21, she was raised to life. Certainly this man is dead and long gone. Luke 7, he, raised, he was raised to life. Certainly there's not enough food. Matthew 14, boom, 5,000 people are fed with leftovers. Certainly this storm, Father, this storm is going to take us out. Matthew 8, the storm is brought to calm. And certainly my life is too far gone for the Lord to save me. Isaiah 5, verse 59, verse 1. My arm is not too short to save and my ear not too deaf to hear. See those certainties we can live with? He wants to deconstruct those certainties. An undivided life with Christ is resting your certainty, if you're going to have some certainties, not on the situation, not on logic, one plus one equals two. No. Not on your own summation of things, your own equations. This is, this is how it's going to work. You don't base your certainty on those things. We base our certainty on His goodness, His presence, His plans. We place our certainty in His nature. And in the truth that the weakness of our lives are made strong in Him. That our vulnerability is soil for growth. 
Let us live certain that the weak things of this earth heal the strong. And let's be a community where the weak are known to heal the strong. Where we have those testimonies, where we've known what it means to overcome. And we've allowed grace and peace over our histories and the things where God has worked. We'll give them space in our lives for the Lord to turn them into our testimonies. My whole life I lived, I lived very divided because of trauma I experienced as a kid. And it was like I was one person in my heart and one person in my head. And the person who I was in my head, I thought I needed to be. Because my mom and my sister needed me to be that person. Or people or things around me, I needed to, I needed to act in a certain way just to keep things at peace. And I was actually completely disconnected from who I was created to be. And as I grew and I got married, it intensified. I'd see glimpses of my true self, but there was always a wrestle within me. I didn't want to fully bring Sean to earth, the, the real Sean to earth. I didn't want to bring 20%, 30% of, of him. And about three years ago, we went and saw a lady, lovely lady, and she's like a homeschool consultant because we decided to um, homeschool our kids. And we thought we were going to get our kids assessed, but she's like, no, no, you're all doing a personality test. So we filled out our tests and she was going through the results and she looks at me and she goes, she points at me, you don't, you don't know who you are. I was like, okay. She pointed at me and she said, you are living out of your persona, not your true person. And over the next while, I had to intentionally commit myself to friendships, to covenant relationships. I had to intentionally commit myself to being vulnerable in front of my friends, learning to cry and seemingly not have it together. I had to be intentional about that. You know that we, Christ in us is the hope of glory. We always hear that. But hope is not a positive attitude. Hope is an action. Hope is daily. Hope is gritty. Hope is facing up to who you are and who you've struggled to be and being present in your relationship with God, with your relationship with yourself, and with those around you. And if you feel stuck or divided in life, I, I want to encourage you to allow Jesus' room to deconstruct those certainties that are holding you back from being fully you. Let his impossibilities blow within you. I've asked Rowan to come and... Um, just sing one of his songs over us. I just feel like I love giving Jesus room. room. Because <laughs> I really believe he is, like Rob said, he is right there. He is, we, it says in the scripture, we turn and open our arms to Christ and we realize he already has opened our arms to us. That's the truth. And Rowan wrote this song. It's called Fingerprints. I don't know if he's named it yet, but I'll call it Fingerprints. <laughs> And it's his testimony of God moments and encounters where the Father has shown up and left fingerprints over his life. He had to be intentional about going to see those fingerprints. Where have you been, Lord? And he saw there was a fingerprint. There was a fingerprint. There was a fingerprint that now are pillars of his testimony. Can we do that? Can we just let Rose sing over us? And just, I want to encourage you to allow the Lord just to speak. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit thecollectivechurch.co.za.